Please turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2. Picking up at verse 17, we left off last week. We found on page 973 of the Black Pew Bible there in front of you. Picking up in Galatians, where the Apostle Paul still very much is uh, in the context of confronting Peter, the Apostle Peter, for his inconsistent behavior, behavior inconsistent with the gospel, explaining himself. In verse 17, he begins by anticipating the pushback from the Judaizers. We'll pick up there. Galatians 2, verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I wonder what is the most important thing in your life? What is your determining factor? You might call it your core identity. The thing that you you most closely identify with, the, the thing at the very essence of your being, the thing that makes you who you are. Perhaps this morning you know that as a Christian, the answer to that question of what is most important to you in your life, it ought to be Christ. Your central identity ought to be a Christian. Your core essence ought to be your union with Christ. And yet, we know that practically or functionally in our lives as Christians, there's a lot of uh, Uh, warfare going on, but really, what is most important to me? Who is my God? What is the true nature of my religion? Am I really all about Christ or not? No, our, our functional identities, those things that are easily recognizable about us, uh, those things our neighbors might notice as we walk back and forth to the car, or as they get to know us in a neighborly way, or perhaps it's those things we show on our our bumper stickers, or in our tattoos, or on our t-shirts. We live in a civilization, of course, that has largely unmoored itself from its Christian past, and we live among a people who are continually trying to find an identity, a community, a cause to live for. It used to be, in a general way, a, a, a Christian civilization. Now, Tara Isabella Burton, in her book, Strange Rites, New Religions in a Godless World, chronicles the ways in which our neighbors are trying to find a new religion in in whatever sphere it might be in. Perhaps it's their 
identity as a political activist. This is my cause and my community. It's, it's who I am. Or perhaps it's their sports team. Perhaps you know people that are they're a Georgia football person. It's what they wear. It's how their fellowship. It's their songs, their tradition. It's, uh, it's how they use their money. It's how they mark their calendars. It's the center of their life. Perhaps you know some Trekkies or some Swifties. Perhaps you know people that are beach people or mountain people. They find really their whole personality expressed through this thing we're in the midst of people longing for a deeper, richer identity, longing for coherence, community, and a cause. And certainly Christians um, can use this call to union with Christ as being the determinative factor in your life, the, the most important thing in your life. That's what Paul is getting at here. He's not getting at it in so much the way I have, but he, he comes to it through his argument in the letter, which we'll look at together. He is arguing in this letter to the Galatians about the issue of justification by faith alone, the central core of the gospel. And this issue, he, he anticipates an objection, and that's what is there in verse 17. That is, uh, I'll argue that the objection is, well, what about antinomianism? Why won't, the, won't they just keep sinning and bring Christ into it with them? And then his answer is here for us in verses 18 through 21. So that'll be our outline as we work through the text together. First, we have, to have clear in our minds the issue of the letter. Then secondly, the objection Paul is arguing against and anticipating. And then thirdly, his answer, which is summarized, I think, best by saying, we're united to Christ. It is who we are as Christians now. So let's first look at the issue. This is what we were doing last week. It's there summarized for us and repeated and repeated in verse 16. Look there, Galatians 2.16. It says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Hammering it over and over. That doctrine that Martin Luther says is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Justification by faith alone. We must understand this issue before we understand what Paul is talking about in 7, or 18 through 21. Dikaiosune is the Greek word for justification, and it's a, it's a rather broad word. It can mean just righteousness or right or just or justified. It has that broad meaning. But the clear emphasis of Paul's letters and of the whole New Testament is this, this concept of a courtroom scene, that you stand condemned before the judge as it were at your sentencing. You have been found guilty, red-handed, dead to rights, caught on tape stealing glory and honor from the King of Kings, and you are deserving of the just judgment of God. And in this courtroom scene, instead of a declaration of clear condemnation, the sentencing of the wrath of God, you are transferred from one who is guilty before God to one who is now just or righteous. It's a transfer of status your legal standing, the government, the king, the whole world cannot condemn because you stand before God who has the power to do so, declared right and just. That is justification. 
Now, that would be a, a terribly unjust thing to do for any judge, to declare someone who is guilty of murder or terrorism or whatever, and just to, just to say they're right and not let anybody touch them. That would be uh, uh, the work of an unjust judge. But that so that God might be ju- both just and justifier, so that He might be truly righteous as judge, and it also show the mercy that is inherent to His being to show grace, the cross of Christ stands at the center of our religion. It's by the cross that Jesus takes our place as the condemned one, and the wrath of God falls upon Him. He is counted as condemned. He becomes sin for us. And imputed to us is His perfect life, His right standing. Imputed to Him our sin and our guilt and our shame, swallowed up in wrath, us set free by the accounting of God. The debt we had transferred to Him, His righteousness, His riches transferred to us. This all happens, Paul is arguing, not because somehow the the person who's been justified has worked themselves up to it, not because they've lived a religious and moral life. Paul is saying, no, it's freely of a gift. It is by grace through faith, not of yourselves. This is the issue. All the religions of the world, including the ancient Judaizers Paul is arguing against here, you've got to work through purgatory. You've got to accumulate some good deeds to outweigh the bad. You have to pay the alms, do the pilgrimage, make the sacrifice, get some good ledger, uh, get some good, uh, good account in God's ledger. Just like in grade school. You don't get to go to recess unless you have enough gold stars, unless you've done the homework and raised your hand and not run to the class. You have to stay in from recess if you don't have the gold stars and do your math homework. No, we're accounted righteous simply by God's fiat, His Word, and upheld by Christ's work. The confusion would be over this idea that you, you somehow stay justified by then doing the just acts. Uh, you eat clean, you hang around the right people, you continue to do the, the religion in the right way, and you stay in the good account. You don't want to fall back into the bad account. You have to do the things to maintain the righteousness, to maintain justification. Paul's saying, no, it's by faith. See, so Peter, just in our verses before, seemed to have gotten confused somehow. That's why Paul is opposing Peter to his face. The Gentiles believe, but you know, they, have to, they have to do the ceremonial things. They have to eat. Don't be eating the pork. You have to get the circumcision. No, Paul is saying it's by faith alone, not by works. And this isn't just uh, you know, an, an, an issue. It is the issue, we might say, of, this, of the Christian religion. Uh, perhaps there's someone here who's never heard this offer of the gospel this morning, who, who doesn't know that this is actually the, this is what the Bible says our relation to God is like, that you can be set free. You can be unshamed. You can be set right with God forever simply by trusting Him. That's the offer of the gospel. That's, that's the thing. In our sermon, it's just the first point. But if you don't know, if you haven't heard it, don't leave this room without talking to somebody on the way out about this thing, justification by faith alone, and what the difference it makes in, in your life, saving you from eternal wrath. This is indeed the scandal of the age, and it leads to this issue of justification, the gospel, leads to the objection Paul anticipates in verse 17. Look there with me. 
Paul says, this is, remember Paul is speaking in the place of the Judaizers. He's saying, now, you know, if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Remember, according to these Judaizers, it would be sin to be eating the bacon. It would be sin not to be upholding the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, all the rigmarole around the temple cleanliness laws. To be eating with Gentiles would be sinful. They're asking here, if law-breaking isn't deterred by fear of not being justified, and law-keeping isn't incentivized by being justified, if justification is a gift, then who is going to be keeping the law? Who's going to be not sinning? We're all going to be sinning if this is the way Christ deals with us. See, if there's no stick and no carrot, if they just receive grace through faith, what we thought we received by law-keeping, you're going to drag the name of Christ through the mud. Paul's opponents are going to be saying, it's going to seem as if Christ has, been, has made it so that you can do whatever you want in life and it doesn't matter. You can sin that grace may abound. It's going to make Christ seem like he is anti-law, anti-nomian, anti-keeping of God's law in general. He'll be enabling, condoning, allowing sin somehow. Perhaps we might understand it best. It's, it'd be like if the government just forgave your student loans. Nobody's going to pay them back if they're forgiven. Nobody's going to keep the law if your debts to God are paid, they're saying. Or further, we might put it like this. The gospel, this justification by faith alone, changes everything about the religious life. It changes the ends, the means, and the motive. It's a completely different way of living. If the ends of the law, that is justification, are given as a gift, there's, there's no reason to keep the law. If the means of justification are faith and not works, well, who's going to be keeping the law? Who's going to be doing the works? And if the motive for law-keeping isn't saving yourself, it isn't the anxiety that I want to avoid hell, well, who's going to do it? Who's going to, keep, uh, not sinning? Who's going to take not sinning seriously at all? And this, we might say, is the assumption of the Judaizers, uh, the Pelagians, the sacerdotalists, or the federal visionists in each age or era of the church who oppose in some way this doctrine of justification by faith alone. This simple grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone doctrine of salvation, they say, will make a flabby, weak, sinful, undisciplined, unserious church. Without fear of judgment as the ends, without the anxiety to earn as the means, without the self to redeem as the motive, no one will keep the law, and it will be smirched Christ. You'll be dragging him through the mud. You'll think Christ is a servant of sin, antinomian, anti-law. And this brings us to his answer, to this accusation, that the issue of justification will lead to antinomianism. How does Paul respond to this? What will make Christians law-keepers? What will keep them, make them righteous truly? And, and Paul, Paul starts by underlining the emphasis there in verse 17c. He says, certainly not, may anointa, may it never be, verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And the commentators are all over the map on what Paul is exactly saying in verse 18. I think it particularly helpful to 
Look at the other major wall that Paul mentions. That's Ephesians 2.14. The dividing wall of hostilities torn down by Christ. That is the picture of what happened in the temple. The wall that separates the Jews from the Gentiles. The separation wall. Jesus tore down. The ceremonial cleanliness laws are taken away. When Jesus on the cross is dead, the temple curtain is rent in two. Now that means many things from top to bottom. One thing it means is that the age of the temple, the need for a gold box to, to interact with God, to have fellowship with God, that is now past. Christ has made a new way through Him, through faith in Him, not by works of the law, not by ceremonial law keeping, not through a high priest that makes atonement for you. He is the temple. He's become a new thing. I think Paul is saying here that it would be regressive and transgressive to rebuild the wall that I had torn down and more importantly Christ himself had torn down. No dividing wall between Jew and Gentile among God's people. You can't go back. You can't rebuild what's been torn down by Christ. This is his first answer to the objection of antinomianism. Now from there, Paul gets deeply theological in a very compact space. Verses 19, 20, 21, these three verses, Paul essentially in Romans 6, 7, and 8 gives a larger treatment too. We might summarize it most helpfully, I think, by pointing to this doctrine, the blessed doctrine of our union with Christ. Why won't Christians fall into antinomianism, to law throwing off? Because they're united to Christ. The single determinative factor for the Christian life, the core identity of everyone who claims Christ ought to be or is union with Him. We need to understand that what happens the moment we first believe is not simply and only that we're justified. When, we're, when we believe, it's not only that we are transferred from guilty to righteous. No, in, in a further and deeper way, the Holy Spirit, by faith, connects us to Him. And the moment we are connected to Him, instantaneously and simultaneously, the benefits of Christ flow to us. As a child, I thought that, you know, all you needed was basically a straw, and you tap it into the maple tree, and you could drink the maple syrup out. It's very disappointing the way that process is more complicated to me. Or like a coconut. You find a coconut, you just need a good straw, you pop it in. Well, that's not uh, quite so easy either. But the moment we're saved, the moment we have believing faith, the Holy Spirit connects us to Christ and we are fed directly the benefits of being connected with Christ. We are not only justified, we are also regenerated. We're born again. The process of our sanctification has begun. We are also adopted. All the benefits of, of being connected under the headship of Christ are given to us. We are not only transferred in our status of legality, we're, there's a new head we're under. Romans 5, Paul explains that all of us are found in our first father, Adam. And in Adam, all die for their sins. But there is another head. And we are transferred and put in Christ. And in Christ, we have life by faith the power, the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the more fundamental transfer that happens when we believe. This is the way Paul explains it. Verse 19, I live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's Christ in me. I live by faith in the Son. We have union with Him. 
And as we look at these verses, we can see further, it's not only that you were united, we can learn about the nature of our union with Christ. Paul points out that this union with Him is not only legal, it's not only justification, it's also organic. The reason that why the Judaizers need not fear the antinomian of Paul's gospel is that when you are justified, when you believe, you are united And there's not only the legal realities of being justified and adopted, there's also the organic realities of being born again and having the Spirit living in you. The organic realities of regeneration and sanctification. We might say that there's not only a, a courtroom scene, but in this salvation larger picture, there is a courtroom scene in which you're justified, but there's also a surgery room scene where your heart of stone is taken out and it's replaced by a heart of flesh. Your old desires are removed and your new desires are put in as new life is put into you by the work of the Spirit. It also includes a labor and delivery scene. You are, in a sense, organically born again by the Spirit, as Paul, as Jesus explains to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. This is part of what Paul is showing us in this answer of union, that it's not only legal, it's also organic new life put into the believer. On another level, he's showing us not only the organic and legal nature of union, but the punctiliar nature of union. There's a a punctiliar moment of change, a clear before and an after. Paul says in these verses, he says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ Christ lives in me. Romans chapter 7, Paul explains that it's not only a death to life understanding, it's also a, it's a marriage metaphor. Marriage is also particularly punctiliar. Um, often, you know, as I'm standing preparing to do a, a wedding ceremony and I'm with the groom and the best man, you know, back in the room back here, we're waiting for the mothers to be seated and you're listening for the music, the right song, so we walk out at the right time. You know, it can be quite a while back there, and we get to chatting, and often, several times this happened, the, the best man starts to tease the groom. You know, hey, why don't you sit down? This is the last time you'll ever be able to sit down as a single man. You know, why don't you, have you gone to the bathroom? This will be the last time you ever get to go to the bathroom as a single man. Because there is something that changes legally and radically when we walk out in front of one and take vows before God. There is a punctiliar nature, a before and after, a a death and a new life. We might say there's not only a legal and organic nature, a punctiliar nature, but also a semi-inaugurated nature of our union with Christ. Look at verse 20 with me. Let me ask you as we read verse 20, who is the one that is living? Is it me or is it Christ? Well, clearly it's no longer me, but Christ lives in me. And yet by the end of the verse, the same line as it were Paul is saying, and I, the life I live, I live in the flesh. Well, well, which is it? Is it Christ that lives in me or is it I who's living in the flesh? Of course, it's both. Mystically and spiritually, we're touching on a, a spiritual reality that's still a mystery. We're clearly not automatons, robots operating with a Christian operating system, nor are we autonomous, simply operating on our own, under our own willpower. But no, there's, there's been given to us a, a new heart, a new spirit, new loves, new desires that is working in us and growing in us. 
It's inaugurated, it's semi-inaugurated, it's started and yet fully not consummated. Again, perhaps marriage is a helpful analogy here. It's the same way that getting married, married changes you. The, the moment you say, I do, it's, it's over. Uh, it, there's a change. Uh, the woman gets a new name. The guy has new responsibilities. And yet, we know there is a, a oneness that is started there that only grows and deepens. You know, actually, today is Abby and I's 12th anniversary. Uh, and uh, we, although we were unified when we said, I do, we're now far more unified, far more one than we were when we first started. This is the nature of our union with Christ. He is in us. He is working in us. He who began a good work will carry it on to completion, Paul says in Philippians 1. Paul explains in Philippians 2 that we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us, both the will and to work for His good pleasure. We have been justified, and we are being sanctified, and we will be perfected. But there is this semi-inauguration. There's this, there's this space of time, right, between when the President of the United States is elected and when he's inaugurated. Was he the President yet? Well, he's a President-elect, and he has not really taken over yet. There's something in that of Christ. There's a, there's a beginning that is not in the fullness. There's an already but not yetness to our union with him. Paul is answering this question of antinomianism by pointing to the union with Christ, that it is legal and organic, punctiliar, semi-inaugurated, and that this union, you see, changes everything about the religious life, about following Christ. As we said before, the ends, means, and motives have all changed. There's been a death to the old means. Verse 19, I died to the law entirely, so you don't live by the law at all. No, no, not to the law entirely, to the law as a means of earning my justification. There's been a death to the old means of willpower, and I'm going to make it, I'm going to do it on my own. No, it's not on my own anymore. Verse 19, I live to God. Verse 20, I live by faith in the Son. Death to the old means and a life to the new means. God's the Son of God being the way, the means. There's been a death to the old ends. The old goal had been law-keeping to justify myself. I've got to prove to, my, to God and to myself and everyone else that I'm not a bum, that I can keep the law, that I, I've earned something before God. Look, there's a death to that old way. Verse 20, the goal is no longer justification, but growing union, deeper fellowship, a deeper understanding, a further, greater life with God. There's a new ends. Further, there's been a death not only to the means and the ends, but also to the old motive. I used to keep the law, keep running so that I might save myself from hell. I don't want to go to hell. I better show up in church on Sunday. But Paul explains, the one united to Christ, verse 20b, now lives by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No longer motivated by fear of going to hell. No, I'm motivated because I love God, because He loved me. He switched spots with me. He saved me. It's like you, you've had a one-stroke little smoky engine taken out of your chest, and you've had a nuclear reactor put in. Here is a bottomless pit of energy, of motive that never runs out. Love and gratitude to God. The Christian life is utterly transformed. There's an utter transformation at the very essence of your being when you become a Christian. 
The law is no longer a burden but a joy. We can sing with the psalmist, I love thy law. On its precepts I meditate day and night. Why? Because there's not only a legal change, there's an organic change. And that he who started it will bring it to completion. It's semi-inaugurated. It's punctiliar. There's an old way that's gone. A new life in me. Paul closes here in some ways by pointing in verse 21, I think again to his, his opposition to Peter. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, as, as Peter was trying to, to act, then Christ died for no purpose. <clears throat> Paul's saying, Y'all acting like the the law was a ladder to climb up to justify yourself to God. That nullifies the grace of God. Y'all killing yourself to pay a debt that has already been paid. Jesus paid it all. In reality, the law is no ladder. Might helpfully say it's not a ladder, it's a mirror that shows us our sin and our need of Christ. Trying, Trying to climb on. Trying to climb on mirrors is a recipe for disaster for shards in your hands. See, Christ died. If he died for no purpose because we're trying to use him as a ladder, no, Christ died so that he might come down and rescue us, unite us to him. He didn't simply save us away of, or throw us away of saving ourselves. He didn't just give us the law. He didn't throw us the life rings that we might, you know, do our best to swim up and put our arm into it. No, he, he came down to the very bottoms of the earth where we are deads in our sins and he breathed new life into us. And the life I live is no longer just me, but Christ in me. There's a new power at work and it's Holy Spirit communion with Christ power. Sin that grace may abound, never. A true Christian, you see. What ought to be the very core of your identity your determining factor, your union with Christ, legally and organically, his heart, his mind, his will. We long to be like him. We hate sin because he died for it. We hate sin and love righteousness because it is his way. We helpfully sing, as the hymn writer puts it so well, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say, our Father in heaven, I pray that we more and more would grow into our union with you, that we indeed would hate our sin, hate that which chased you to the cross on our behalf, that we would live unto Christ with new ends and means and motive, motivated by your love for us, your sacrifice for us, out of gratitude for your work on our behalf. Father, make us Christians who are not slaves, not hypocrites, not Pharisees, not living a life of fear, but a life of joy set free from rote, monotonous, soul-crushing attempts to keep the law in our own strength. Help us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.